Are you familiar with that passage? Merchant sells everything he has when he finds a pearl that's better than anything else. He's a, if you will, a fine craftsman of pearls. Sells everything and buys the one. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. I was asking the Lord yesterday about today's message and I was torn between several things. And uh, He finally said, I want you to trust the process. And I said, trust the process. I know what that means. That means when you're doing the next right thing that you'll bless it and then the next right thing and it'll get you where you're going and leave the results to you, God. And He said, that's right. Leave the results to me. I'll take care of it. You just do what you're supposed to do. God has never failed to provide a message whenever I've had to speak one. And the only time I ever didn't have a message, and I didn't even have it that Sunday morning, is we snowed out. That's the only time ever, and that was many, many years ago. And I was so thankful that, that God was able to do that because He knows what we need to hear when we need to hear it. Once we get still before Him, it's a lot easier to hear. Amen. Amen. I have something I want to tell you. It's a story. I was asking my sister, uh, Melinda, about some of the events in her life. We did a family timeline while my sisters and I were together, starting with my oldest sister's birth to the current events of life. And I asked them just to put highlights in there. And so we could see our lives compared to their lives, each other's lives, to see when they had a low point, if we were in, in the place where we were better or where we were all struggling. And, and just to, to take a look at all that. And one of the events I remembered was when I was in high school, Melinda's house was gutted by fire. Complete loss. And uh, Not only did she lose her dog, she lost almost everything she owned. I don't know if you've ever met someone or have ever lost everything, but it's hard to replace those things that are irreplaceable. Furniture, clothes, things like that, you can replace. And I, I asked her a question. I said, Melinda... Actually, we call her Mel. I said, Mel, what is it that you um, miss or don't have? And she said, well, there's a few things, but one of them is the pictures. The pictures and the memories. And I said, what else? And she said, well, I used to have a, a, a fantastic collection of, of vinyl record albums. And those were all melted as well. And And those things... She said she can't get back because they're original runs of things. And so I began to think about that and, and look across my life and see what kind of things that I no longer have that were either taken or I lost or uh, otherwise no longer with me and what things value um, in their material value do I have that I miss or things that I... Wish I could get back. And I began to think about that, and most of the things were things that were personal in nature, created, or pictures, or things like that. All those things. It wasn't like, boy, I wish I could get back, you know, some toys I had. You know, those would be nice memorabilia, but they're not things that leave a vacancy for me. So if you were to walk through your home, and you imagined that you had to pick a prized possession of yours, not counting your family, 
what it would be that you would grab if you had to rush out and just could take it in your hands. A lot of people have a lot of different answers for that. But if you look at it and you walk around your home and do that, I, I recommend trying that. And then if there is something like that, put it in a lockbox and keep it near the door. Absolutely. Um, when I began to look around my home, I, I had a couple of things that I saw. One of those is a plastic bin that has all the rocks from Israel, including Nehemiah's wall and some other things that uh, I got from Emmaus and other communities like that that have a spiritual significance to connect me back to God. And I said, the other thing I'd probably grab would be a hard drive, an external hard drive, because it has all pictures and documents and things like that on it. Those would probably be the first two things I'd grab. But one thing that my sister also mentioned that she lost was her dog. Her dog died in that fire. And it was a good dog, too. It wasn't one of those dogs you go, I'm glad. That. It was one of those where it's an irreplaceable dog. And she said, I also miss my dog. So, in a fire or any situation like that, can you think of just the one thing that you can grab up in your arms or a few things that you can grab up in your arms and be, you know, this is more important to me than anything else. And the reason I ask that is because as we begin to look at our lives, we realize that a lot of stuff is replaceable. There are things that we can go get another, you know, blender or a microwave. Those things we wouldn't be grabbing and saying, boy, if I don't have that, my life's going to be vacant. Maybe you have a Bible that really, really matters to you or an heirloom or something like that. I don't know what it is, but if you can't think of the one thing and you say, well, I'm torn between these, then put the top three. And think about that for a moment because those things in your heart are more important than all the rest. And those things which have value to you are very personally connected to you. And when something is personally connected to you, your life seems empty or, or, or less filled without them. And here Jesus is talking about a man who has many possessions as a jeweler, a merchant. And he finds one better than all the rest. Listen to me. This man makes his living buying and selling pearls. Do you hear me? That's his livelihood. All the pearls that he has. And he sees one that he likes so much that he realizes that all the things that he has, pearl-wise and all his possessions, are going to have to be sold to be able to purchase the one. Now, that's his livelihood. That means he's letting go of his income. It means he's letting go of his earthly possessions that are sellable for the one thing that means more to him than all of that. The kingdom of heaven is like that. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is like that. It has to be. Now Jesus says that the kingdom is like that because He knows. 
He's telling us because He knows what it's like to put God's kingdom ahead of anything else. There are some things that people will say they love Jesus over, but put to the fire or in a day-to-day test, not so much. When Jesus was confronted about His heavenly Father and what He said about Him, He did not back down and say, you know, I didn't mean to offend you by that. You know, I'll just just share it another time to somebody else so I don't bother you. He didn't do that. Personal and public opinion of Him were not important to Him compared to His heavenly Father's. He said, I don't care what you say to me, I must be about my Father's business. And that business I must do while I am still here. So he put that above other people's opinions, his relationship with his heavenly Father and doing kingdom work. When he was teaching, his mother and brothers came to see him and they said, we need an audience with you. And Jesus said, anyone who listens and does what I say and does the will of the Father, they are my mothers and brothers. So he didn't stop teaching to go see what they wanted. So family was second to the kingdom of God for Jesus as well. You say, well, that's a tough one. Well, it doesn't mean neglect, deny, or push away your family. It means they come second. It's a simple priority, right? But you can't make Jesus a priority if you don't know who He is. In the passage that we're in, in Matthew 13, there are several. Uh, Russell even began to introduce one for us that I was going to share with you. It's like treasure hidden in a field. And a man finds that treasure, sells everything he has, and buys that particular field. Now he's lost his home, (laughs) all his wares, to buy a treasure in a field. It sounds preposterous. And it logically and cognitively makes no sense to get rid of all that you have for one thing. Unless that one thing's really, really awesome and matters so much that your life is empty without it. When Satan tempted Jesus Christ, he tempted Him with several things. One was to eat. One was to cast himself down to see if the angels would hold him up and God would protect him. The third one was ruling authority over several nations. All these things sound like good things, but Jesus' response simply was, I will not violate my relationship with my Heavenly Father to gain stuff for myself personally. I will not do that. I will not violate Him or His Word. When you think about it like that, it's very difficult to see in anyone's life where they're 100% got Jesus ahead of everything. Why? Because you have to survive. And you need relationships. You have to have clothes, food, shelter, and family is important. But i got to share something with you this morning. He's not asking you to get rid of that. 
He's not asking you to sell everything or get rid of everything. He's asking you to consider that the kingdom of God is a hundred times better than anything else you can bring before it. There is nothing more valuable once you know what it is and experience the grace of God. What would be more important to you than the forgiveness and salvation from Jesus Christ in life? And once you have that, what would be more important than letting Him know that you're thankful? I can think of nothing. So that makes it kind of hard to say, well, I'm busy when the church asks you to do something. What are you busy with? Well, there's this other thing I'm putting ahead of God's kingdom right now, but don't worry, my life's good with Jesus. I've heard that before, but it wasn't that simple of a response. It was, well, I have some things I have to do. I have to go, uh, well, if you look through the Scriptures, you'll find the excuses. I have to go bury my father. I have to go check a yoke of oxen that I just bought. I have to see some land. Another one says, i got to go get married. Jesus to each of those says, um, that's not the priority. The priority is following Me. What is eternal life? But to know Jesus and the One who sent Him. And how can you know Him unless you know Him? He's not an idea. He's not a thought. He's not a doctrine. He's not a philosophy. He's not a good thing to do. He's not something you talk about or talk uh, to others about. He is a person and He is involved in your life more than you can be. Even when you don't know He is. So all these ideas that Jesus suggests the kingdom of heaven is like are not ideas, but things that we must practice. What is it that you hold valuable? What makes it have value for you? People build bigger and bigger storehouses for stuff. What is it that you would need to make your life feel complete? I will say this, when you lose something that's important to you, life changes in a certain way. Things that you wish you could look at, like old pictures or old memories that brought meaning to you, seem to kind of change your identity a little bit. But that's because that's your earthly identity and what connects you to who you are and your upbringing, your roots, things like that, to family. Those are great things. But they do not sever the identity that you have when you lose something with Jesus Christ. That relationship is your first identity. When He is the Lord of your life, He is first. The first thing that defines you. I read something this week and it really surprised me. I've never heard this before, but it says that our identity of God is based on grace. That my identity is a grace-based identity. I'd never heard that concept before. I'm still wrestling through what that means. But I understand that my relationship with God is based on His mercy and grace, not upon what I deserve and what I earn. So my identity is based on God's grace and how He views me. 
rather than what I think I deserve or what sin says I should have. So that grace-based identity then says that I have a position and a place with God that I wouldn't have otherwise. So do you. But we seem to take this for granted. When the Gospel is presented, it's like, well, if you'll just accept Jesus, you know, and then He won't be mad at you, and you'll be okay, and then your life will be set, and you'll be alright. And you can keep putting other things in front of God. Because it's trying to make you think this is your choice. You choose Jesus. Not true. He chose you. And that's not a long time permanent forever choice if you don't enter into that decision with Him. And choose Him on His terms. He chose you in a certain way. He didn't choose you to remain the same. He chose you to instill the Holy Spirit within you and begin your relationship with Jesus Christ of growth, mercy, and reconciling the world back to Him. That's what He put in you. He did that. That's the terms of Him choosing you. And when you accept His choosing of you, you enter into His terms, not yours. I've heard it said like this, and I don't know how to say this in a nice way or a friendly way, so I'm just going to put it out there how it happened. I was at a funeral one time of a man who went to church as a young boy. He had not darkened the door since, was a violent man, and died a basically uh, outlaw. At the funeral, the pastor with his theology said this, when he was a young boy, he gave his life to Jesus So therefore, He's with Jesus in eternity. Nowhere after that decision do I see a life given to Jesus Christ. He said, because He accepted it, it's therefore true for Him. But if it's true for Him, you live your truth. Correct? You don't live something that's not true for you because you would be Double-minded. You can't do it. You're going to live out what's true. And so, as he grew older and became more and more estranged from his family, from his son, from his ex-wife and all those people, people just say, I wonder what's going to take his life. And it was when he was drinking in an accident. And almost took people with Him. Now I'm not saying that because He died that way that's justified. What I'm saying is that the pastor's theology is a common theology in our world is that if I enter the relationship with Jesus Christ by a prayer, that therefore God has to fulfill His part and bring me into the kingdom of God when I pass away from this earth. Scripture says you enter into the relationship on Jesus' terms not on what we say it ought to be. His terms are that the kingdom of God is more precious to you than anything else when you enter into that relationship. It's a very simple term. And when that doesn't happen, then we have to come before God and say, God, bring me to the place where I honor You before all. That You are the One who I love with all my heart 
with all my soul, with all my strength, and all my mind. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all that you got. But if I got other stuff of competing, how's that love? I don't know about you, but my wife would be very, very upset with me if on the day we married I professed my love, I said I do, and never came back to her. Would you call that abandonment or a great marriage that we celebrate never together? Does the I do make the marriage? Is that all it takes? If that's the case, I'm I'm married twice still. And all of us who've been in multiple marriages are still married to the first one because we said I do. And what if we said I do to someone that we weren't really intending to marry? You know, like, yes, I'll marry you, but we never did. Therefore, since we said it, it must be true because we said it, right? Not true. God establishes the parameters and terms of the covenant and we live under that. And we're in it by grace. Not our works. Not what we've done. And until we understand that, we think that the kingdom of God and Jesus is something we just pick out and choose how and when we want to do it. That's not surrender. That's not having a Lord and a Father. It's still being the rebel child or the black sheep of the family that we were before. So I'm not telling you the day that you give your life to Christ, you're going to be radically transformed and everything else can be pale in comparison. But it can. So that means we have to begin to ask God to examine our hearts and our conscience. And say, God, where am I at in this? There's a saying... And it's true for a concert orchestra player, violinist, tuba, French horn, to become proficient at the professional and expert level, it takes 10,000 hours of diligent practice. After about 1,000, they're very good. After about 4,000 or 5,000 hours, the increase the extra practice takes is marginal to someone unfamiliar. There's a difference between world class and very good. At our annual conference, we had a piano player. He's the Murray State. Um, I think he teaches music down there. Uh, He was phenomenal. And I said, he's so good, he makes it look like he's not doing anything. This is how he played the piano. This is what it looked like to me. And he's just bouncing around and smiling and happy. And he's not looking at his fingers and not looking at the music. And all of a sudden, there's this amazing stuff. All different styles and techniques coming out of this piano I've not heard very few people do. And I said, this man makes it look easy. There are people who are so good at something that it says, well, anybody can do that. Try I can sit behind a piano and go like this, but I can't make the sound come out that he could. You would say, please, stop touching the keys. And no one will get hurt. (laughs) 
But that's what I'm saying is we don't know what it's like to practice the Christian faith because we haven't put 10,000 hours into it. If you go to church one Sunday, uh, uh, one hour every Sunday, and that's the extent of your faith, it's going to take you 10,000 Sundays to get proficient. You won't live 10,000 Sundays. If by chance you come for two hours Sunday morning, an hour Sunday night, and an hour on Wednesday night, let's have some fun with the math. That's four hours a week times 50. That's 200 hours per year. It'll only take you 200 years to get to 4,000 hours. And by the time you get to 1,000 years old, you'll have had plenty of time. Do you understand? It just doesn't work that way. If you spend 40 hours a week, I got the math for you, for 50 weeks a year and taking two weeks off, that's 2,000 hours a year. A full-time job, five years in, you're expert at it. Until then, you're still learning. I've heard people on the job at McDonald's for four days saying, man, this is easy, anybody can do it. But imagine them being there five years, how good they'd be. They could run the store, couldn't they? Probably even manage it and set schedules and do ordering because they're proficient. But we don't get there because we think we don't have to. But what is it that you're willing to give that kind of time to in your relationship with Jesus Christ? When do you want to get proficient? How much time does it take to read and study before you finally realize, hey, I need to read this all the time and study it all the time. I need to be in prayer. Paul says... Pray without ceasing. Well, if I just spend four hours a day in prayer, it's going to take me 20 years to get good at it. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Four hours a week in prayer, it's going to take me 20 years to get good. Do you hear what I'm saying? We're not really doing the work of the kingdom if we really want to practice the faith. We just want to be... a Observers. Did you know Sunday morning here in worship we come and, and we listen to a message, we sing a few songs? This is observing. It's non-participatory unless you're engaged on a deep level and it's connecting you to the heart of God throughout the whole period. This is practice. Sunday morning should set you up for the week to go out and do what you need to do. We're going to have things that incorporate in upcoming services how you can act out and live out the faith throughout the week and not just on a Sunday during worship. I don't know about you, but to me, this is not serving others for us. Yes, I'm doing the work of the pastor and serving that way, but by serving others, you have to be engaged in the service and doing something that's blessing somebody else. Blessing somebody else. But, but why do I want to do that? Because I've been blessed so much that God has given me something that's better than anything else and I want someone else to get it too. That's why. This is worth more to me than anything else. Nothing I have compares to the relationship I have with Jesus Christ. But does He get more time than other stuff? Not always. And not usually. And our society and our work schedules say, 
That's okay. But we need to ask God, where can we get you prioritized in the life we live or do you need to rearrange things for us? Some people don't like things rearranged. Some people hate change. Especially if somebody else is doing the changing for you in your life. I'm sure Amber, when her husband took her life, wasn't so happy about the change that was forced in her life. And when I talked to her the other day, she was so difficult to talk about that she said, I just really don't know how to share the depth of the loss. A lot of different questions and concerns in her heart. Why? Because her life was changed and she didn't want that. She didn't try to make that happen. It was imposed. So I'm going to think clearly with you that you don't like others to make changes in your life that take things away from you that are important. So God is asking you to figure out the one thing that can never be taken away. Luke 11, Martha is busy trying to serve Jesus. Supper. And Mary's sitting there, according to Martha, as a lazy bones, at His feet, soaking in Jesus' words. And Martha, troubled, says, Jesus, would You tell her to get up and help me? There's so much to be done for You. And Jesus says the words that impress upon my heart this message. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about so many things. There's so much on your mind. But Mary's chosen one thing. And that one thing can never be taken from her. That's the one thing that you need to think about. What's the pearl for you? Today we're going to have communion in just a moment. And I'm going to ask you to make this a moment for you and Jesus only. The meditation that I wrote is a part of that. There's no room in communion with Jesus for other thought or distractions. So ask your head to clear. Take a deep breath before you receive. Whatever you need to do to make this between you and Jesus... Nobody else. Not people watching, not knowing if you're doing it right. None of that. Can you do that this morning? To make it between you and Jesus? Can this moment be holy for you? Will you let it be a face-to-face encounter with Christ? Some people get a little nervous sometimes. They go, oh, I took off too much bread or not enough. And It's none of that. It's about receiving. And when you receive it, look at the hands that offer to you as hands of God saying, this is me for you. There's no need for excuse or explanation other than to say you're there by grace. And so this morning, if you've thought of the things that matter most to you in your home that you would take out, I'm going to ask you to lay those down at His feet today and say, Jesus, if these are in front of you in my life and more priority... I lay it down.
I would grab this. A cell phone. It's replaceable. But I would grab it. It's one of my three, unfortunately. So when you commune this morning, say, Lord Jesus, search my heart. Test me, try me, and see if there's any wicked way within me and lead me in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, this morning we prepare to take Holy Communion. I ask that you would remind us that you're here. And this is a time where life can be transformed because you are here in it and you meet us here. And I ask as you do that, Lord, that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds and our hearts. And when we partake in this communion, Heavenly Father, may it be just us with just you. No one surrounding us, no other thought in our mind but you. That it would be holy and we would be holy unto you. That everything else that comes into our mind that isn't of you in communion, unless you brought it there for us to lay it at your feet, doesn't belong. And the enemy would have us not to have you priority and only you in this. Then he would say, you got to have all this other stuff too. God and is enough. The Lord Jesus, you alone are enough. And help us understand it's not a painful thing to say that you're more valuable. I would lay that all down for you. It's not a painful thing when we realize those things we can't take with us into eternity anyway. They're things. And without you, we don't get that anyway. We die with our toys. Thank you for your word to us today. Amen.